Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie is in the sound engineer's booth. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation, Dr. Katherine Turpin. Dr. Turpin is Associate Dean of Curriculum and Assessment, Director of the MDiv program, as well as Professor of Practical Theology and Religious Education at ILIP School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Dr. Turpin, to the conversation. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Lynn. Thank you for inviting me. So we want to talk about um, the very provocative question on who owns education? Right. What's the purpose of education, which gives us a starting place, but then who owns education? Yeah, so I have a story about this that goes back to my own time in college. And I was traveling on a service learning kind of thing, and we were meeting with college students in Brazil. And one of them said to me, you know, in the United States, when you think about education, it's your education. You go off and get an education. It's yours to use as you want to use, whatever. And here in Brazil, not everybody gets to go to school. And so when somebody from a village makes it to into higher ed in one way or another, gets to university, there's this understanding that the whole community owns that education. And so as you, you know, whatever you're being trained for, it's with the knowledge that you're bringing it back to your community. And in a sense, the community belongs Uh, the education belongs to the community. And I mean, this just totally disrupted my whole individualist kind of notion of higher ed and what I was doing and made me think about who would be the community that owned my education if this were true and, you know, challenged all these white notions of individualism, things like that. And I've been sort of, I suppose, intrigued by that this whole time. And then, you know, recently there's been all these situations coming up where, particularly in K through 12 education, you have teachers having to post their curriculum a year in advance so parents can decide whether or not children are going to be exposed to the things they're going to teach or the whole thing that just went down in Florida with the anti-woke act about what people are allowed to teach in their own classrooms. And I was having a conversation with my doctoral pedagogy class about this. And we have a student from Myanmar in the class who was talking about how the dictatorship there determines curriculum, you know, across all professions um, in ways that signal sort of the goodness of the dictatorship. And people were like, oh, I'm so glad we don't teach in that environment. And then we started having these whole conversations about all the ways in which we do teach in that environment, where the things that we are teaching maybe do not belong to us in our own um, academic freedom or a sense of what's important for our students or even to students and their own values but are enmeshed now in all of these systems of um, control, really, about what is taught or not taught. Um, And it's been a very disruptive thing. So on the one hand, I really enjoy thinking about, like, that that this isn't just individual return on investment or individual personal development, that, you know, education really has much more of a communal purpose. And then on the other side, this idea of, like, what does it mean when the wrong communities take charge of that? Or in my mind, the wrong communities and who are the communities that own um, the education that's going on? So it's been something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I mean, I think it's precisely the time to think about that, right? I mean, I think it's coming, it's coming to you because of all the examples that you mentioned. Um, one of the, one of the questions I used to ask in the first or second session of my intro to educational ministries class was 
um, and have each person respond in a very public way, like by putting it on a poster that then got hung around the wall, was they were supposed to represent either what community they sent them to seminary or what community do they represent in seminary. And for international students, for BIPOC students, for uh, minoritized students, it was not an issue. It was not a problem. That was not a question that was stymieing in any way. Not a hundred percent, but primarily for white students, they thought the question was unfair. They thought it was unwarranted. And on a couple of quick occasions, they went to the Dean to complain. <laughs> <laughs> Again, who wants to say that? That's right. That's exactly right. She is asking us unfair questions and causing us discomfort because and, and you know that because because why right then you you know the pushback is because why because we don't represent a community because we don't come here having sent by anyone we have no obligation to any community other than ourselves and to disrupt so the question was so disruptive of an assumed frame of how the world and reality of course is and what is normal that people people complained. I didn't, I didn't stop asking the question. <laughs> I know how you are. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, it certainly points to and makes vivid that we come from different worldviews, right? The individualistic Western worldview is a, rea a reality, not the reality. And the understanding that there are other realities that are more communal or completely communal is usually not in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess I was so intrigued by that idea and it was disrupting my own sort of, I think, white sense of identity and how I'd been trained to think of myself. And, and I think, I mean, part of what we were trying to do in class was asking, you know, well, why should we invest in education, higher education as a public good? In particular, as people who teach in religious studies or in theology, you know, what arguments would you make for your continued existence in higher ed, you know, mm -hmm. as these programs are getting cut because they don't prepare for jobs that make money in certain ways. And, and, and so part of what we were wrestling with was not only the sort of are students coming from an individual perspective or is this a communal perspective, but also, um, you know, what is the value of this formation if we don't think of it in terms of return on investment for individual job um, kind of growth. And I mean, I was laughing when I was introducing this topic because it's such a basic question, but it was so hard, let me tell you, for us to sit together and to try to make an argument, <laughs> of, you know, for like why you should invest in higher education as a public good um, without running into these horrifying sort of formational questions about, well, what about legislature saying teachers are the voice of the government and therefore they should only teach the things that we want to teach, you know, or these kinds of, you know, in my world, it's more like well, you can't teach Methodist doctrine if you're not an elder in the Methodist church and you have that kind of imprimatur, you know, or certain things like that, where anyway, it was striking to us how difficult it was to sort of articulate anything besides economic arguments for higher ed, even though nobody in the room really believed in those. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And that wasn't why they were doing it, but trying to think about the cultural sense-making of what's going on in higher ed. Um, 
it was it was a striking conversation and we kept finding really unsatisfying answers to that question well <laughs> and there are other conversations that happen because invariably a white student will ask an international student are you are you taking your degree back home right right are you going back home so there is a sense that you are that that person over there that other person is returning out of obligation to somebody else and taking an education back home. So there's a glimpse of it, but the glimpse is for other the othered people. Right. Not yeah, not not a claim on me and nope. my own accountability to whoever nope. has supported me in this education nope. or to who sent me and will receive me later. Nope. Particularly if you're there by student grants from the government. Right. right. That's part of the economic frame that you're talking about. It's like, well, if it's not economic and it's not about the government or kind of societal scaffolding, how do we lean into this obligation? And maybe and we don't. I mean, right. The suspicion is we don't lean into it. We don't need to. Right. Because the other argument is more convincing that this is about personal growth or about personal um, sort of access to the goods of the late capitalism, you know, that we live in and that that's fine, you know. And I, I think one of the other things that's been happening for me is my undergraduate institution, Birmingham Southern College, is about to shut down this year. Mm-hmm. And the only way they will stay open is if um, the government of Alabama decides to invest $37 million or something in their endowment. Mm-hmm. And they've been trying to make a public argument for why they should exist and why they should invest in this p- private institution, right? Mm-hmm. And again, like what you get is a lot of you know, individual growth stories <laughs> from these students. Mm-hmm. About, you know, it meant so much to me. This is how my life changed. This is how I did. And every once in a while, like, oh, and we make all these professionals who contribute to the society and teachers and whatever. But it's just so interesting to hear a private liberal arts college trying to make an argument for itself <laughs> as a public good that should be invested in with in a Republican mm-hmm. legislator and all that. So, um, yeah, I think these are questions, you know, I know that people are wrestling with as their religion departments are getting eliminated or as, you know, liberal arts more generally is getting sort of questioned because that economic argument for higher ed has so won. And if you can't prove that what you're teaching really leads to student jobs or earning power or something um, so that people can pay off their loans, then you don't deserve to exist, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what I hadn't realized until recently, though, is... (laughs) The other side of that is like, well, what if these kinds of communities actually get to decide the formational agenda for all students, right? That um, that I don't agree with or that I don't, you know, align my own values with. So that's not a part of your moral math, right? That's the, the problem is the moral. So that I do think that that individualism for the public good. It's not an oxymoron, right? Though it could be, but it's not an because that's how we live, right? Individualism for the public good. It sounds strange to say it that way, but that's what it is. When it becomes individual for the public good, then it attaches to freedom of speech. Right. So even those we disagree with, we still champion from a communal mindset that the individual has the right to speak, even if I disagree with them. Mm-hmm. That's what's so mind-bending about the kind of democracy and capitalism we've created. And in the classrooms, we're trying to shape to support capitalism, to support democracy or a republic. And the pieces are hard to fit together in a place called classroom. They really are. And I think, 
you know, when you have these students rejecting the notion that they represent a community and that, you know, um, you have a formational agenda for them about understanding sort of how these, you know, ties work and who they are situated within social systems and with communities and all those things. And I guess historically, I've always said to the teachers, you know, that I'm working with who are emerging teachers, look, you have a political agenda for your students. Um, it's important that you're self-aware about it. It's important that you share it with them and that you're upfront about it. And it's important that you allow them to navigate your class if they don't buy into your program in some way, you know, that there are ways that they can demonstrate learning that don't involve taking the oath of pledge to your political agenda or whatever. But now I'm like thinking more and more about, you know, how do they survive in places where um, the political agenda they may be naming, in fact, uh, has been declared, you know, impossible, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, there are some strong examples of that, like the Florida legislature, but there's also, you know, much smaller kind of versions of that in a lot of state schools and other places where, because people are trying to appease donors or they're trying to appease the board of governors or whoever it is that, um, that kind of overt political um, transparency, I guess I would say on the, on the um, professor is really seen as malpractice mm -hmm. or as, um, um, yeah. And, you know, this is one thing for me to talk about as a white person. Um, it's another thing to talk about when your body itself is the political thing that you can't lay down or you can't um, not be transparent about, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that it the stakes get even higher and the sanctions get higher, um, you know, when it starts to be a more involved kind of identity that becomes impossible in the classroom. Well, I think we underestimated the weaponization of these arguments, right? So that there was there was a moment, and I, maybe this is naive, where we could agree to disagree, we could we could be together and have different worldviews, um, and somehow the eclipsing of one over the other was not active weaponization, right? So that's I'm not I'm not saying oppression didn't happen, right? Or racism and sexism, right? All those kind of things. I think there's a particular weaponization now in the digital age where people are literally out screaming each other and not having conversations that make sense. And as long as you can scream the loudest, um, you kind of win in the argument. Yeah, I've said a lot, you know when I first read Pedagogy of the Oppressed however many years ago and Frary was talking about propaganda and massification and all of these things and I kind of thought that's quaint like uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know it was way off and not a reality that now I realize oh okay uh -huh. like I get what he was talking about uh -huh. now you know that if if you say enough things in a public space over and over again they start to be influential and they start to form people whether or not they have any basis in reality right and um, yeah I think that kind of mode of communication that has become so much a part of the public dialogue has really made it difficult um, to be transparent and in conversation without there being a need to shut down um, the other in some way. Yeah. So what, what are the strategies, right? So I'm always interested in strategies for moving classrooms to more generative spaces around these issues. So, you know what I mean? As a white woman with this kind of consciousness, 
right? You were, the, the trip to Brazil kind of shook you up about this. Have you changed your own teaching tactics any? Um, I mean, I think I did historically in terms of sort of owning my own politics and naming the agendas I had for people and, um, you know, testing them and being open for critique or whatever. I guess now what I'm thinking about is um, one of the interesting things is people have access to your syllabus a month before you ever meet them in a lot of mm -hmm. situations. They, you know, so those kinds of things are getting mediated before relationship or before a chance to actually kind of um, set a, a tone for the classroom, uh, which means I think a lot of people self-select out, right, when they see kind of where things are going before they even see you if they can. Um, so I think it's changed the way I do syllabi now. They're much more chatty and much longer. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to sort of evoke some of that ahead of time. Um, I think, I mean, one of the realities of where I teach is um, in theological education in a small school that has a very strong um, historic identity politically. I don't get a lot of students that haven't at some level decided they can live with that, right? Yep. They have some modicum of trust in the, before, right. in, the, yeah, in the process, yeah. before they get uh -huh. there. They uh -huh. have other choices. They wouldn't be with us if they didn't. So I think this gets much more complicated in public setting, public universities and undergraduate early classes than it is, I think, even in my setting. Um, yeah. So I don't think the response is to hide those agendas. No. Right? Like, no. I don't think it's... Um, and I do think getting better at explaining, you know, or at um, having visions for what we're hoping is happening in the classroom. Um, I think of like Anna Louise Keating talking about providing alternative stories um, to those sort of status quo stories or, you know, these these kinds of languages we have about what we think we're up to um, is part of it. But it's, um, I, I guess it's it was a startling moment to have people comparing like American educational systems to dictatorships, you know, in uh -huh. Myanmar and thinking, okay, like there's a qualitative difference here that we recognize. Uh -huh. And in some ways, you know, those, the, um, yeah, I guess it's just been making me really um, step into the side of alternative consciousness against communal forms of formation uh -huh. um, and trying to hold those in balance, as you said. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But but you started with the provocative question of who owns the education, right? And yeah. that I also hear you saying that the the answer to that who owns education is more than an economic response, right? An education can't is bought and sold, but that can't be the only narrow response to that very provocative question. It's not a satisfying response, particularly in this day and time. Yeah, so thinking about the communities that we are accountable to and the stories and narratives that we do participate in and the, um, I, I can just hear myself going, the worlds we're hoping to create, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the um, the practices that we're hoping to generate in the world, you know, the different ways of being in community together that, um, yeah, more and more seeking those out, uh, writing them together, being in conversation with other people about them, it just feels really important. Um, so it's not reduced to return on investment for an individual mm -hmm. customer, right? Uh -huh. Or uh -huh. or some sort of gross, like, um, we don't want people to think things that 
don't align with our political agenda, kind of, you know, the other side of that, um, something in between. I think it's also a, a call for solidarity amongst communal peoples, mm-hmm. right? That it's not always about those who are individualistic versus those who are communal. Communal people are not necessarily in solidarity, right? So there's a lot of, right? So, that, so there's a lot of work to be done um, trying to be in relationship with each other and not always coming to the same normalized uh, response to these provocative questions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, your question calls for solidarity, calls for the work of solidarity, right? The work of, of um, finding allies, the work of kind to, trying to be conspiratory together in the best of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and work's not easy either. And, yes, that yeah. work is very difficult. It is, yeah. And it feels like, um, so much more than maybe what we signed up for when we were like, I want to teach in higher ed. What committee am I on? Like, and all these really strong things. Yeah. yeah. But so. if we can have those conversations, so so but you and I both teach from from this kind of philosophy. It's not so much um the answers, but it's the provocative questions. If we can get our students to engage in these questions, that's when the doors open up, not mm-hmm. just to give them pat answers. Right. But really, yeah. I mean, even as I was thinking about recording this podcast with you, I thought, I don't really have an answer for this. Like, I, it would be better to, for her to give me a question. I felt like I had some answer to, but right. but that's what I'm trusting in our conversation and in other conversations is just um, that wrestling with the hardest things that's that right. we face are really, is really what um, becoming educated is about. And it's a lifelong process done in solidarity with smart people like my colleague, Dr. Westfield. <laughs> We trying, we trying. That's all you know. We're trying, trying to, and and it feels in this day and time. I mean, I keep talking about the time that we're in. Th- these conversations are critical, right? They're not extra. They are critical. Yeah, I, I know. It feels, um, you know, I know my students in a PhD pedagogy class want to know how to do a syllabus, and they want to know how to lead a discussion, and they have these very concrete kind of skills that they're wanting to learn. But it it has sort of pushed me to really think about, you know, these really basic questions of like, what do you think you're doing in the classroom? And how do you answer these questions about, um, yeah, the kind of formation that you're engaging in and the values that are behind that and the communities that you're aligned with and why you're doing what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in these kind of heightened polarized situations where, I mean, there was a recent... um, survey of high school principals who said the last year was the hardest year in their teaching career, which wasn't, I mean, it's still the lingering pandemic, but it was more the politicization of education and the ways that their school boards and their parent groups were coming after them about all kinds of questions about who they were forming and why, you know, and what they were trying to do. And just, yeah. So I guess in some solidarity with all of those educators out there working in K through 12, I think um, this is something that the rest of us also have to be working and answering and, and really supporting uh, the work they're doing. Um, that's important work that's kind of under attack right now. Dr. Turpin, thank you so much for this provocative um, and necessary conversation, right? That, that, that these are the times when we need to have these provocative conversations because the aim of teaching is contested, right? We don't, what is the aim of teaching? Mm-hmm. What are we trying to do here? What are we what are we trying to do here? What are we trying to do in these spaces? So thank you very much. Thank you.
To our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for information about our roundtables, our hybrid workshops, and our colloquies. Also on our website is information about our journal on teaching, our syllabi collection, our blogs, as well as an archive of all of our podcasts. On our website is also information about our large project grants and our small project grants. A special thanks to podcast producer Rachel Mills and the music which frames our podcast is the original composition of Dr. Paul Myrie. The Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs>